family is all that lives in sight and sound, touch and taste. Live, come on, be human and give, give, give. <laughs> the Woodstock Roundtable welcomes you to be a part of being human. Aho! Greetings, everyone. As we wait for the impending storm, we'll check in with some interesting improvisational dialogue here at the Woodstock Roundtable. Doug Grunthe, your host, and looking forward to talking with our co-host and Woodstock Roundtable poet laureate, Victoria Sullivan, and engineering our show and co-hosting with us, Radio Woodstock on-air weekend warrior Ron Van Warmer. Among the topics, capitalism at its worst, killing the mockingbird, a theatrical situation that gets to the heart of what's eating at us. Comparing Facebook and Twitter, who's controlling whom? We'll check in with an interesting essay. The journalist picks one over the other. Interesting reasoning. We will open up the Woodstock Roundtable jukebox and see what comes out. We'll have live jazz from the Sultan of Sonic Soul, Gus Mancini. Wrapping it up is our favorite street philosopher, Patrick Carlin. Uh, And we'll check in with the Michael Cohn testimony, coming up with some little different perspectives, perhaps, than you've already heard. We expect it to be fun. We expect it to be a little insightful. Certainly unpredictable. So fasten your seatbelts and join us for the Woodstock Roundtable. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Let's get rolling. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Doug. Good morning, Ron. And good morning. And you know that music. I just realized it would be great to play that in delivery rooms when a woman is giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I just thought that would be so great if the baby came shooting out right at that moment at the end of that music. The timing would have to be really... Yes, right. Well, the baby might speed it up when they heard the music. That's true. That's true. My I, son, who was a doctor, when he was in training, he had to do everything, including delivering babies. That's not a specialty. And he said the point was you couldn't drop it when it came shooting out. Hmm. That was the main thing. You had to have a kind of football player's uh, hands for some babies. They should use a catcher's mitt or something. Well, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> a little trampoline at the end there. You know? Which is an interesting thing. I mean, uh, I imagine that we're all traumatized at birth because it's interesting. I've t- I have talked to... I know I forget whether it's a nurse or a doctor who was convinced from having delivered you know hundreds and hundreds of babies that there is, there seems to be a will on the part of the fetus to come out, mm-hmm. you know? um, which is interesting because if you think about it, when we were um, in in the womb, it was a pretty good deal. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, you're getting fed, right. you're warm. You don't have to worry about storms coming in. But it's uh, getting tight. The longer you're in there, it's getting tight. You have that big head. Yeah. And there's some expansion, obviously, inside the woman. But at a certain point, you don't have a lot of swimming space in there mm. when you've been in there for nine months. And what is birth? Contractions. And everything starts to contract incredibly. So... It starts to push it out, and I would think that the, the little creature in there suddenly thought, let me get out of here. You know, there's all these contractions. It's an earthquake. It's an earthquake. And, and it's very <laughs> liquid, so it's sort of like going down a water slide in a water park. In fact, maybe that's why water parks are so popular. Good point. I, I've seen, I've seen uh, birth on, on, on documentaries in a tank of water, so mm-hmm. that the mother is actually submerged in a tank of water, and the baby actually comes Instead of coming out into the air, just goes right. into the water. Well, that would make sense because it has to be traumatic to be in this. All right, first you're in this warm. You're somewhat conscious. We don't know the level of consciousness, but you're somewhat conscious. They, I mean, we now know with sonograms and right. and you're being fed constantly, and you're in a nice warm kind of 
bucolic environment. Uh, bucolic's not the right word, but it's, it's a nice <laughs> It little, might be. A kind of like nice a little, little swimming pool. Yeah. And <laughs> he did. then all of a sudden, yes, like a you say, you pool. feel these contractions, this, this heavy pushing, right? right? And you've been in this nice warm space. You don't know where the hell you're going. Right. Um, it's the first time you've really been in motion significantly. And then all of a sudden, there's this dark tunnel. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you come out into this cold, uh, a, a situation which is much colder temperature. Right. I think the hardest part probably uh, in deliveries, the way we do them in hospitals, is the bright lights in the in the delivery room. Mm -hmm. and I think that must be sort of horrifying. And didn't they slap us? Yeah. The <laughs> if they're not breathing right away, they oh, slap they them to get them breathing. If if they come out screaming, you don't have to slap them. Oh, you just have to muzzle them. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think also, with I mean, all the trauma of birth, et cetera, I think there's very different births. And some babies come out and they're kind of like awake and others come out and they immediately want to fall back to sleep. So, I mean, our personalities are revealed <laughs> within about five minutes of birth in certain ways. Interesting. So, I don't know. How, oh, how do we got on? Oh, you, you, yes. I did the music. <laughs> it just music, did it for me. Yeah. I suddenly thought, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, we're trying to... Birth something. Birth the show here. Yeah, that's and right. We're off and running, and um, you know, my comment on the the Michael Cohen. First of all, anyone who says that's not good theater isn't paying attention. Absolutely, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you 100 percent on that. It's great theater. Uh, it's, I mean, with a few tweaks here and there, it could have been a scene from a Godfather movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, some people, and, and you know, Michael come with that great New York accent, that, that you know, and uh, and he looks more and more disheveled throughout it. Without without a makeup person who would have been going in and putting the circles right. under his eyes and things, he just got that way as the hours went on. <laughs> and of course, to me, what what ruined you know ruined it from being really entertaining was the the just obvious superficial grandstanding of both. Members of, of the pack, you know, the, the Democratic and the just making mm. speeches, and you know that they were they were rather dull. I thought Cohn was pretty interesting, um, and once again, our con well, New York City's congressman Alexandria Ocasio Cortez stole the show. Why? Because she actually asked relevant questions instead of showboating. You know, it took a 29-year-old to figure that out. There was that other woman who did some questioning, too, after her. I can't remember Hill? her name. She was terrific. All yeah. the women at the end were good. Apparently, they were the new young members, yes. and they were prepared. It was like, this is my audition for Broadway. I'm going to get it right. Well, except it was their audition for being an intelligent uh, congressperson. Right. Um, Whereas the other ones were playing to the cameras, and um, but here's the point I want to. I bring thought up. Cummings was good though. I really did. He was mm. he was he was good. And when that crazy argument went on about whether uh, one of the guys had been called a racist or not, Cummings was very good about calming that one down. Well, look, I like the visual of an elderly black man with a very heavy. I don't know, is that a southern accent? What, what kind of accent? Very, yeah. very, He's very from ethnic. Baltimore, yeah. Okay, very ethnic accent running the period. show. That's, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's pretty good, just from the visuals. But here's what amazes me. There, there, statistics can be man, manipulative, et cetera, but every once in a while you hear a fact that just seems to cut through everything. And, and I'm going to go to a fact from about 10 years ago, and I'll tell you the reason I'm bringing it up. When I read this, it blew my mind that in the first decade of the 21st century, when Jon Stewart was on a roll with The Daily Show, more millennials were getting their news from his comedy show than they were from any of the news networks. I remember reading that. Okay. Yep. Now, that's pretty interesting. <clears throat> um, now we have a president, like him or not, love him or hate him, who is best known, those of us in New York knew him as a real estate mogul. I always like that word, mogul, you know? That's something you ski over. Um, <laughs> but across the country, the country that elected him, he wasn't primarily known as a real estate No, he was mogul. known for that he show. He was known as a TV reality right. star. Right. Right? And Gerald Salente of the Trans Research Institute has been calling it the presidential reality show for some time, which it is. Here's what amazed me when I, I was going to say opened up. I don't get the New York Times 
in paper. I get it digitally. When I was going through the front page on the digital screen of today's New York Times, one of the articles is a photo from Saturday Night Live last night, which I didn't see, uh-huh. but I always I. checked in. And um, now I'm having a senior moment. Who, who's the actor? Uh, um, Alec Baldwin? Thank no, you. No, oh. I don't no, know. No, uh, he plays Trump. Yes. Right. Oh. No, uh, it was, oh, God, shame on me. Uh, very successful. Parents were comedians. Come on. Parents were comedians. Um, Mira, and Mira, and, and, and I'm blanking out on his name. Oy. Thanks. Okay, three of us. He was on. <laughs> At any rate, very successful actor. Did a very good Michael ben, Cohen. Ben Stiller. Oh, ben Stiller, Cohen. thank you. Ben Stiller does a Michael Cohen. Okay. This was on the front page of the New York Times. was a photo of Ben Stiller as Michael Cohen. <laughs> oh, wow. In the comedy bit they were they did, and I saw it on YouTube, and it was very well done. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> that's a front page story. They didn't have a photo. Now, remember, this is a f- the story's a few days old. I right. get it. But they didn't have a photo of Michael Cohn. They had a photo <laughs> of Ben Stiller playing Michael Cohn from a TV comedy performance of The Hearing as a front-page article in the New York Times. So the distinction between what we consider reality and entertainment, and entertainment is probably never was as distinct as we thought, but now there's no distinction whatsoever. Yeah. It's all bled together. And and Michael Cohen, just from the standpoint also of the visual, he has an interesting face. Go on. Well, I mean, just the whole look. I mean, as you said, a mafia film, the 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 hair, the face, the the sort of suffering at the same time trying to be brave and get it out there. There was something compelling about his performance. He almost mm-hmm. cried. It was like Powerful very acting, as was Cummings, and I thought Cummings at the end, when he got very homey and folksy and, and summed it up and started talking about the loss of decency in America, etc., and, you know, someone could have written that speech for him, Aaron Sorkin, who we're going to talk about later. I mean, it was very – normally I don't like it when politicians get too folksy. I, you know, I'm a well, urban kind contrived. of person. But, but he – really seem to be speaking from his heart. And again, you say, seem to be. I mean, a good actor convinces you that this is the truth, even if it, it's just a role, but it's a role they've internalized. And that's the thing I felt with both Michael Cohn and Cummings and some of the other people. They had really internalized a strong feeling and attitude and moral position, more on Cummings' side than than, than Michael's. But with Cohen, you, I could believe him. You know, people say, how could you believe me? He lies so much. Well, all liars sometimes tell the truth, and all truth-takers, talkers, probably sometimes lie. Now, there's some people who are congenital liars, and we won't discuss them. Um, but, you know, Michael Cohn gave a good excuse for lying. I was working for a man who wanted it from me. I went for this guy. Yes, I threw myself under his spell, and therefore I just Lied, 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 because I knew that's what he wanted me to do. That's compelling. I see people do that all the time. Uh-huh. People. Um, a little different take. I had some empathy for him. I felt while I'm sure he rehearsed his speech and it was in his interest to say what he said. Mm-hmm. I, my sense is, I don't know this, that he does feel some contrite about it, that he does regret what he, and not just because he was caught. I think yeah. he, I think there is, you know, I think he realizes. But but let's be honest, um, he was a thug. Yeah. And let's be honest too. If he had not been caught, he would not be sitting there. Of right. course not. He I mean, would he's not, not have basically his... a moral person or a highly moral person. But you know, the interesting thing, and and there were so many pieces of the testimony, but sort of on this point of who he is, when one of the women who was interrogating him on the Democratic side asked him how many times he'd intimidated people. And he said, well, well, you know, quite a few, many. And she said, well, what does that mean? He said, oh, quite a few. And she goes, well, 50 is more. He goes, 100? <laughs> he goes, more. She goes, 200? More. He, she goes, 500? And he goes, yeah, that, that's about right. <laughs> 500 times <laughs> he, he intimidated right. people for Trump. I mean, that was like, 
I wish I had written that. You know, I've written plays. <laughs> I, I wish I had written that because they both, I mean, I'm into, I've also a, was a director for a while. And there's the thing of like timing. And they did that thing beautifully, but it didn't seem false. You know, so much political discourse seems false because it's rehearsed. It's the people that say yeah. the same thing 50 or 100 times. Mm-hmm. They don't answer the question, et cetera. And that was the thing that I think made it compelling. As you said, theater. What made it compelling theater was that it felt in the moment. It felt, I mean, yes, you're right. There were the, the, the people who annoyed me who gave their sort of crazy repetitive speeches about him being a liar. Yeah, he's a liar. Yeah, he but says I, he's a I liar. I felt the same for the Democratic side with the exception of a couple of the women who ask good prosecutorial questions that, uh, that feeds what is what should be next in the investigation right. who do we need um, to talk to <laughs> yeah um and they were the young women on the on the panel mm-hmm. but the the veteran democrats were grandstanding they weren't asking yeah. him tough questions they weren't uh trying to elicit important information they were making speeches for their constituents back home well there wasn't a re-elected. lot of new information i mean it wasn't about information it was funny i i talked to a friend the next day and she said well i didn't learn much from it. and i thought yeah but it was such brilliant drama you know, like, you didn't learn a lot. I mean, it, it was like a play. Like, you know the story of Oedipus, but when you see it in a great mm-hmm. production, there's, like, moments and nuances and, and little shocks, even though you know, you know exactly what he's going to say. But when he comes out at the end and he's torn out his own eyes and he's bleeding and he says, oh, my God, I'm the one who did all that, it's powerful, even though you know he's going to say mm-hmm. that. And this was powerful to me because it was getting down to the basic thing who do we have in the white house um the one thing i will give trump is that i don't give some of his predecessors is that he puts it all out there you know (laughs) he he's not interested in hiding anything well he lies about everything he lies lies about his his height apparently but he does it in a way that he that that is so easily figured out. In other words, with Nixon, you really had to dig to find out what was going on with this guy. He's already put it out. He's already said, I did it. I fired the, the director of the FBI right. because of the Russian thing. He came out and just said it on national TV. And then he, but then he, he takes it back and he says yeah. something else and, and people believe him, apparently. Um, they, I don't, it's not that they believe, see, I don't think they believe him. They, they support care. him. They don't. They care. They hear. Yeah. If you really think this thing, they say, how this guy get elected? Okay. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't the Russians. You know, Hillary helped a lot by being a horrible candidate. And the Democratic National Party, who may screw it up again in 2020, did their <laughs> part by uh, manipulating everything in her favor over Bernie Sanders and, and getting enough people angry uh, in their own party mm-hmm. and watch them do it again. Um but the reason Trump won is because of we're in such we've talked about this and I'll read it again. The second coming. We're in such a period of enormous change and uncertainty having to do with the whole digital age and computers taking over more and more jobs and globalization taking over more and more jobs and shifting in the environment in ways we're not familiar with. And when people are afraid and we're all susceptible to this it's a subject i'm sure victoria would agree is the subject of most great dramas when any of us are confronted fearful insecure about what's going on we look for a scapegoat right because that takes the pressure off of us Mm -hmm. if we can find someone to blame for our problems it takes the pressure off and you've got millions of americans who aren't necessarily racists uh they're scared what happened to the middle class? It's disappeared. And, and Trump, like a lot of people, gave them a perfect scapegoat. Immigrants. Right. Immigrants. And if you think that this is just the United States problem, no. <laughs> look at what's going on with Brexit over in yeah. England. They are screwing themselves yeah. 84,000 times. All over Europe. They too. are going to screw themselves with this Brexit. And how did Brexit, what was about? It was about fear of immigrants. No, it's, you're exactly yeah. right. The... the Trump election and Brexit couldn't be closer on many levels. And the national, the the, the fascism you're seeing in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, elements in Germany, Mm -hmm. um, uh, in Italy, 
What's it about? Fear of immigrants because they don't want all these African Muslim immigrants coming into their countries because um, that's the reason their lives are uncertain. That's the reason that their middle class life has disappeared. It isn't, but it's a very convenient scapegoat. Yeah. And so uh, we can yell and scream about Trump all we want and we should, but he's not the he's not the cause of the problem. He's the result of the problem. Yeah. That that we don't take the time to try to educate ourselves about how to deal with change. So he's the embodiment of the fear. Yes, and wh- how did he? What what did he? What w- he he came up with three a three word slogan? Make America great. No, build the wall. All right, that one. What is he talking about? He's talking. He's not just talking about a wall at the southern border. He's saying I'm going to protect you against all these immigrants coming in who are taking who are the reason your lives are screwed up. And they're, they're the reason there's crime. They're the reason you, you know, that they're taking your jobs. Mm. Meanwhile, he had a bunch of immigrants working at his golf course. Yeah. <laughs> Illegal. Well, he needed them. But he's not the first, <laughs> and he's not the first 10,000th politician. No. Right? To, and on uh, building sites, he used undocumented builders and in his hotels. Sure. So, you know, so on every level. To, but that's, you know, <laughs> hey, fool me once, your fault. Fool me twice, my fault. So if he fools us again, it's our fault. Uh, but the point is, if the Democratic Party, as the antidote, doesn't come up with a way to talk to those people who are truly scared and dis- and, and angry, that it's not immigrants that's the problem, that there's a, it's a very complex issue and we're going to try to come up with reasons to help you, then, then he can win again or someone like him. Because this is not just, this is global. And um, interesting. So we get great theater and... To me, on the more practical standpoint, something did come out of this that we sort of knew but didn't know, uh, which is because um, everyone is holding their breath thinking that the Mueller investigation is going to be the downfall of Trump. And I don't think it will be. I Uh, think it will be part of the thread that unravels him, right? It will certainly generate, continue the momentum. But um, it's up to Congress just as with the Watergate, to come up with this stuff. And what Cohn did reveal something that we didn't know for sure, which is, and he said it almost gleefully. Now, maybe I'm projecting that onto him <laughs> because you know there's nothing he would like better than for Trump to to come be, be, be thrown off his pedestal, right? right? Of course. Um, there is no group of prosecutors that are more tenacious ah, the New York Southern District. brilliant yeah <laughs> and good at getting their man or woman than the Southern District of New York yeah they've hated Trump for since he was a real estate crook <laughs> right <laughs> they are a lot smarter and a lot better at what they do than than any uh, Senate hearing committee or any Senate yeah. or, or or House committee and what we knew that Michael Cohn had been interviewed by them. What we didn't know, is and listen, the fact that he produced a $35,000 check signed by Trump is hard evidence, but we knew that already. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we don't know, because he wouldn't say, and he gleefully looked like the cat that had swallowed the canary, great metaphor, um, <laughs> that he had given hard documents. Remember that his house was raided? Yeah. And the was it the FBI, I guess, that raided him. They took thousands of pages of documents and hundreds of hours of taped phone conversations. Cohn has, we don't know what, but he made it very clear that he has given hard evidence to the Southern District of New York. Not only are they tougher prosecutors than Mueller, not because Mueller isn't bright, but he's, he's, he's somewhat tied by the fact that he's working for a Justice Department, which has political motives. Mm-hmm. But in case you don't know this, this is the one thing I heard was this is a game changer. We know that a president can unilaterally pardon anybody he or she chooses, Mm -hmm. probably including himself. We don't know that, but probably. (laughs) He thinks he can. He he might be right. But only for federal crimes. Right. Right. What Michael Cohn gave to the Southern District of New York prosecutors will not be a federal crime, it'll be state. Mm. 
mm-hmm. can't pardon. Right. And if they go after his kids, it's going to drive him insane because yeah. he will not be able to pardon them. Right. So that, to me, was the one thing we did learn. Well, that's interesting. Um, from it. Interesting. But great theater. And speaking of great theater, <laughs> uh, this story got to me. Not be, And I'm not a theater person. I don't say that proudly, and I don't say that critically. I'm just not a theater goer. But I know, Victoria, that not only are you a theater goer, but you have directed and written some very fine plays. Um, the reason I thought this story, this story got me angry in, in a, in a, is because... It's part of my conflicted perception of capitalism, which, as I've stated many times in the show, on the one hand can be shown to be the greatest economic system in terms of expanding wealth by far that's ever been invented. And most of us are beneficiaries of it. But it's also eating its young. Um, It's become vicious. And to me, a perfect example of it, uh, although no one's going to die over it, um, is a story called Legal Threats from Broadway's Mockingbirds Sink Productions Around the Country. Hmm. Uh, It gives us a chance not only to see the underside of capitalism, but get into some really interesting theater and one of the great novels ever written by an American. And so we'll get into all that when we come back with more of the Woodstock Roundtable. This is the Woodstock Roundtable. I'm Doug Runthier, your host, co-hosting. We have our two illustrious co-hosts with us, Ron Van Warmer, who you know if you listen to music on the weekends here at Radio Woodstock. Uh, and it's also engineering our show and control of how the computer. <laughs> and our Woodstock Roundtable Poet Laureate, who will favor us with a poem later. She is Victoria Sullivan. And um, my favorite subject is the human brain because it's the most important tool we're born with. And... We don't get to learn much about it in our education. It's kind of up to us. And now with uh, Wikipedia and uh, the hundreds of thousands of websites up there with interesting information, we have a chance to learn more about our brains. And with digital 21st century tools, we are, we're, we're, we're actually seeing how the brain works more often. But there's one thing we've known for quite a while that hasn't changed, and that is there's one thing that the brain that is more important to the brain not just our brain, but all animal brains. It's more important than anything else. And that is, it seeks patterns. Mm-hmm. And that gets back to, again, why Trump got elected, because the pattern of life under in the age of digital globalization is changing. And until we get familiar with a pattern, we as human beings are not happy creatures. Mm-hmm. And... We seek patterns, not only patterns, but we want patterns that are familiar. The problem with that is if we only seek patterns that are familiar and comfortable, there goes art, there goes creativity, (laughs) there goes invention. Um, So we're going to talk theater now because of a story I read that really got me riled up. (laughs) And not because I'm a theater goer, but it it got you riled up because you're not, but continue. Okay. (laughs) So we're going to get your take on it since you are. <laughs> the article's called Legal Threats from Broadway's Mockingbird Sync Productions Around the Country. They had cast the actors, sold the tickets, rehearsed the scenes. But now across America, small theaters are canceling productions of Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird because of a threat of litigation from a powerful, sharp-elbowed Broadway producer related to a contract that dates back half a century. 
There were a bunch of regional theaters that were planning to stage an adaptation of the great novel, To Kill a Mockingbird, by the playwright Christopher Sergel. It had been widely staged by adults and students for decades. Lawyers for the producer Scott Rudin, backed by the Harper Lee estate, are now ordering these theaters that their productions are no longer permissible because now there's a new adaptation by screenwriter Aaron Sorkin, which opened on Broadway in December with Jeff Daniels doing very well, right? Yes. So the producer, Rudin, is the lead producer of this new adaptation. He asserted what he called his exclusive stage rights by forcing the shutdown of anyone else trying to put out this pro- uh, a production of To Kill a Mockingbird. So now... Actors struggling to make a living who are involved in regional productions of uh, of this play, including a lot of students who are going to play kids in it, are told, you can't do it. Okay. That's the story as presented yes. in the New York Times by a couple of writers who I think know nothing about copyright law or theater. And I can tell they don't know about theater because their terminology is wrong. They say something like they're practicing their lines. Actors don't practice their lines. They rehearse. And they're either on book or off book. And if you're on book, you still have the book in your hand while you're rehearsing. And and once you've memorized it, you're off book. And then they don't have rehearsal sessions, as these writers say. They have rehearsals. Musicians have jam sessions. Musicians have sessions. I mean, here's the thing. The theater, the professional theater in America, has actually been dominated by labor unions for many years, going back well before this production. And it's highly... um, legalized situation, like when you say these actors trying to make a living, these are non-professional theaters. These are not equity actors. They are not making a living. None of these people are making a living. The little theaters are hoping to stay alive on their whatever, 10 or 20 or $30,000 a year budget. And they may do a great job um, at the non-professional level. Like, um, like, I don't even know what league you'd have to go down to in baseball to make the equivalent <laughs> of them. They have a certain play that they got the rights to back in 1969 by this guy, Sergal. I assume it's not much of a play. Uh, I assume that for a bunch of, you know, elitist reasons. But I just know most plays aren't much good, uh, which is why it's very hard to get a straight play to be successful okay, but on the Broadway. Issue, my issue is not whether it's good or not. My issue is, and I'm happy to be corrected if, if, if there's something wrong here. Why, why does the big, the big bull... In Broadway, because they're doing a Broadway show. Right. Why do they feel the need to suddenly cancel anyone from doing an adaptation okay. of this, this play? Is the, this is how the writers presented it in this, and with all these sad quotes from the 10-year-old girl who, gee, she wanted to play Scout. There are contracts, and there's a contract that is described in here from 1969 with Harper Lee at that time. She knew that someday there might be a great play of her work as opposed to this thing that I suspect is kind of a pageant that they do in grade schools and high schools and things, and it's all very nice, just like, you know, Three's Company was an unfunny popular comedy on TV. But uh, she specialized in that contract that she gave the Sergal family that must have made a fortune because it's the grandson who's still running the publishing company. It's probably their only play. If they get $6,000 from a company who wants to do it, say 20 companies want to do it a year, they're making 120000 a year. Multiply that from 1969, and you see that they've got like a nice handle in there. But the contract says that this play that Circle wrote cannot be performed within 25 miles of a city that has 150,000 people in it because she knew that at some point there would be tours, there would be a major play, and so they didn't want them in conflict. That's the contract. That's the contract. That's what they signed. Now you can say, well, it's an old contract. They signed it. And these circle people with this company that they call whatever they call it, Dramatic, you know, Scripts Anonymous or something. That's not the name, but they have a three-word title. This company is making money hand over fist. Most of the plays that are done in high schools and things, and I acted in junior high and in high school, they're not very good plays. When I look back on them, they're farcical. They have large casts. Hold it. It's not the point. <laughs> but it is the point. No, in the it's sense not. That's an aesthetic point. No one's, th- no one's okay. saying, listen, I, I hated the plays I was in. I thought they were dumb when I was in grade school. That's not the point. And this is not a grade school play. We're talking about regional theaters. who uh, with They're mostly amateur. They're not regional theaters. Okay. They're not Milwaukee why should they be They're banned? Not- why, should, why should anyone care where they put it? The way capitalism is supposed to work, at least the way 
I was taught it. It's supposed to be a free market. Now, we have anything but free market. We have manipulated markets. But capitalism is supposed to be based on a free market. So what, let but people decide. Who's got, do you already really legislated back. Harper Lee negotiated with her lawyers that contract that this particular version of her novel, which she sold to this guy, Sergal, she, she gave him the rights. You know, people can't just go out and someone can't just go out and take a bunch of my poems and decide to make a play out of it. I have copyright on them. She, she had copyright on her own novel. You sell the rights to things. I've sold the rights to things to people to make films. They never made them, but I've sold the rights. You have two years. If you can get a film together, this is I've sold you those rights. This is straightforward, and it's like these Whiny how people, I is, wanted to play it. Well, it, it's, you can't. It's, how <laughs> is, how is yes. the, the, the Broadway show, which is doing great, and they plan on touring, right? Right. So here's how, this is how I understand why they, this contract's about. So now they're going to tour it. Mm-hmm. And let's say they're going to go to Chicago. Mm-hmm. They're concerned that if a group, and forget about high school pageants, that a group of you know, serious actors, whether they're good or not. They're amateurs. They're volunteers. We're told okay. that in the article. So they, want to, so they want to put on this play. Right. How does that hurt? The, well, the it could production. because it's going to have the same name. You're going to see Harper Lee's oh, thing. Some so, people so, are going to think that the Jeff, da- is it Jeff Daniels yes. who's in it? That the Jeff Daniels production is coming to them. Aaron Sorkin, I think, probably wrote a tremendously better play and he took the time his play it cost 5.7 million to mount that doesn't mean the expenses they're putting out every week they haven't gotten their money back yet they hope to get their money back yet that play may be a work of art i haven't seen it yet but i've seen some interesting uh discussions of it on on serious shows on tv so i suspect that they've had to change it around you know there's stuff in the novel that I'm sure is not in this Sergal play because they wouldn't be doing it for kids. You know, the, the black man who's accused of raping a white woman in the story uh, is actually walking by the house and, and discovers that, that her father is abusing her. I doubt that that is in the play that they're showing in grade schools and things. But you're right. Artistically, okay, you would agree with me. But... You've put all this money and time and energy into a production. Uh, you don't want anyone confused. I mean, that's also why people have branding. That's also why people say you can't use those words or something. That's the culture we live in. I don't know whether if you know, if I went back 100 years and tried to rewrite all this, whether I would rewrite the way the theater runs. Equity is crazy. Most people don't know how crazy <laughs> equity is. You know, you have a certain number of hours to rehearse. You have a certain number of minutes that you have to let people off. It is professional, however. But it's like when they used to have uh, Broadway, off-Broadway, and off-off-Broadway, people thought those were just loose terms. Those are very specific terms. The size of the theater uh, the amount you can charge for tickets, what you have to pay. There's Bob. It's very union dominated. It's not capitalism dominated on some levels. It's labor dominated. And it, the dramatist guild that I was in that, that controls, you know, the, the, the union level of, of dramatists and script writers, you know, you get protections and you get things taken away from you for it. But I wrote a play and it went over well, but when you have it at a certain level and you want to move it up, you've got to pay off the actors who were in it at a certain level if you want to move it up. And a lot of people don't want to take it then because they start with a bunch of money. So theater is very money controlled. It's also why we have very few plays on Broadway because there aren't big enough audiences for straight drama. Most of the audiences are for um, musicals. Musicals, yeah. So I get it. When I read through this, I say, this guy is protecting his property. He's put a lot of money into it. And, you know, these people are like, well, we want to put it on. Well, you want to put a lot of things on. I mean, I might just like to slightly rewrite Death of a Salesman, but I can't, <laughs> you know. And I can't go around and say that I wrote it or, or give it to my friends to do. When you do plays, you've got to buy the rights to perform them. And, and high school groups and things have to do that, too. So they play a few hundred or a few thousand, depending. But... Um, I think that the two people who wrote this article, and as I say, the, the language was off. She, that when they're talking about 
when the actors were practicing their lines. Okay, but they're journalists, and anyone reading it understands what they're talking about. If they get a few technical things wrong, okay. But that means they don't get the theater. They don't get how the technical theater works. They could have done their homework better. But, all right, you have, have, (laughs) if not corrected me, you have educated me about why a playwright such as yourself uh, would defend what happened here. All right. It, right. It's an artistic property. It's like a copyright thing. It, otherwise, people would just be taking little bits and pieces of all kinds of things all the time and using them without permission. I wonder if the uh, producers of the new show could have shown a little bit more, uh, thought about it a little further in, in the past about the future and told people not to put this production on anymore. Well, a circle could have done it. The circle company. I mean, what right. was funny to me is when I read late in the thing. That, that, that the grandson of this original guy who wrote the original adaptation is the one who runs the company that sells the rights. So he's he selling could have sent them out knowing. a thing, you should watch out because this is our contract. This may not be a good year to put this on. Because I don't think that, that Rudin and company are going to keep doing this for years and years. And just to be They're clear, what you're saying is, for, right. for those who haven't read the article, mm-hmm. what sort of, and it, it got me, it, it was like a, is that instead of saying to them don't even start your production right. anybody we we can do this they waited until these productions were ready to go right and then they said sorry can't do it yeah and that that doesn't seem reasonable to but me but i don't think that the broadway people were looking around the country to thinking yeah. that way that came up but i think that the Buffalo publisher who sells them the the rights yeah but they're they're not it's not like the buffalo stage company or something it's like the buffalo players who live on woodstock lane you know i'm telling you listen if nothing else i got you riled up and that's my job and you did a good job what happens of educating us about theater i'm just curious if they're putting on a a big production on broadway of oklahoma Mm -hmm. are they going to stop high schools from performing oklahoma if there was a contract to that effect that probably isn't Ah. because there shouldn't be Exactly the point. Well, Harper Lee How was very, is, you know, controlling. Okay, she but, tried her, the, the estate after negotiating with Rudin and crowd tried to stop that Broadway production because he'd changed things around. They'd sold him the right to adapt. They thought maybe his adapt, adaptation wasn't essentially. And they, Rudin and crowd were taking it to court to show it to a judge and say, look, artistically, we had to change this around to make it work. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. Yeah. And Aaron Sorkin is a very talented guy. Now, yes, he is. Let's get into it since we're on the subject. <laughs> uh, let's talk about it because Harper Lee is in a rarefied position, not only to have written what, forget about what we think, what you know, professional critics mm-hmm. uh, uh, have basically said, if not the greatest, one of the three greatest American novels ever written. Mm-hmm. One of the most powerful. I, actually, I don't think people in the literary world consider it one of the three greatest American novels. But it's it's definitely considered a good novel. Um, all right. So I'll rephrase it. Uh, important novel? Effective yes. novel? Yes. Okay. It changed the way people looked at race at a time uh, in the 60s when racism particularly, it wasn't just in the South, but was particularly heinous. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, interesting story, but she wasn't that her only success? Yes, it took her, I think, a long time to write it, and then she had a long, 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 long dry spell, or she was writing some rewrite. I mean, it's, it's a complicated story, and I don't remember all the parts of it. The powerful thing about it is, and some of our most powerful American literature is about youth. It's interesting. It's, it's, an, it's the 20th century version of Huckleberry Finn. Mm-hmm. You have a young protagonist... Uh, this little girl scout, and her father's the local uh, lawyer, and he's a, a, a decent man. And this racial uh, incident occurs, and you get to watch it through the child's eyes, and it also makes it very reader friendly for kids. Look at um, Salinger, uh, Catcher in the Rye. Mm-hmm. We like to see young people, 10, 11 years old, 12 years old, whatever coming of age and making discoveries about life. So it's a perfect thing to teach in 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade. Uh, it's actually gritty, as I, I said earlier. There, there's some interesting material in it ab- about that whole sexual issue, which, of course, is why black men were so often stigmatized. It was frequently the false accusation of a sexual crime or like the awful thing of the Chicago kid who goes down to the South in real life and and whistles at a woman a white woman and and is killed Mm -hmm. is killed for whistling at a white woman 
Uh, and somebody says, well, you know, he didn't get it in Chicago. <laughs> People might be angry or say, hey, cut it out. When did this take place? This was in the early, s- mid to late 60s, 60s. Yeah. Schwerner. Yeah. Uh, um, it, and it, not an uncommon incident no. when this novel came out. So it was really still, I think it still works. Obviously, it's doing well on Broadway. It's, it must be a good story. But uh, it, it was And a courtroom well drama. Because right. the father takes it on and everyone says, oh, you shouldn't take on this case. You shouldn't represent a black man. And the father is, father is a very decent person. And and the two kids, there's a girl and her brother, and and there's sort of their childhood life is there, and and they have I, I believe a black servant who lives in the house. So there's this whole atmosphere of family and a certain amount of nostalgia, but then in it comes this dark strain of racism, you know, pure full out racism. And by the end of it, of course, the the black characters are all very sympathetic. And and you see the the horror of yeah the, the the according to the story Atticus Finch the father figure mm-hmm. the good lawyer presents evidence that clearly shows that not only was the black man innocent of the charge mm-hmm. but they charged him we're back to scapegoating again because it was actually wh- wh- was it the father yes the, the father the, actually raped raped his daughter and so they well, let's put it on this black guy yeah and. Uh, Atticus Finch shows very clearly in court that it wasn't him, and they convict him anyway. And he goes they, in jail. He tries to escape, and they they, they kill him. Uh, so that's one thing. But there's other things uh, to too. And um, interestingly, uh, uh, Robert Duvall played Boo Radley in the movie. There's there's kind of a crazy neighbor, mm-hmm. and that's an interesting. The recluse role too, and that's like straight out of a Dickens novel. You know, because he lives in a house that they never see the inside of, and the kids are fascinated the way you are in your neighborhood by the one local crackpot. Mm-hmm. You know, the woman or the, who goes or the spinster or the exactly. lonely old guy. So this the, is the, 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 the uh, son of a of a strange old family uh, who just about never comes out of the house, and uh, I think that. You know, he's a character who finally, he's, he watches the kids, he watches the neighborhood, he knows what's going on, and one night some kind of rednecks try and beat up the kids, and he comes out of the house in the dark to save them. And they're in crazy, I think, Halloween costumes, yeah. so they can't see the kids. You know, they have these crazy masks and things on their head. So it's all very mysterious, and and again, it reminds me a lot of, Mark Twain, and it reminds me a little of of Dickens. You know that that wonderfully complicated world that you get in fiction, where there's dark things and there's bright things, and there's childhood innocence and there's corruption in the society. It, it this, it's a lot to teach in a in a high school ca- class. Which makes my case is why it just riles me up, contract <laughs> or not, that a Broadway producer is ordering small regional theaters to stop. Stop doing their play. Okay. okay. I'm not saying I'm not making a legal argument. <laughs> no? I'm just saying it. Rile, it just. Right. It just something but that, that article was me. written to rile you up. They didn't give it's, any of the reasons why much of this occurred. Although they did describe the contract. That's there. why we tossed it to you. <laughs> um, all right. So um, I, when we open up the jukebox after the break, we're going to have a poem from you. Uh, did Gus send something in? Uh, he did. Oh, great. So we're going to hear from the Sultan of Sonic Soul. Uh, and then, as I was, uh, my, when I review my life, which I thankfully don't do too often, the events that are most endearing to me are the ones that I, where my intuition was in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and intuition is such an interesting part of the human brain because... On the one level, it's 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 that kind of gray air, not gray is not a word. It's that interesting interplay between unconscious and conscious thinking. Because if we're totally conscious and rational, then our intuition can't work. While intuitive insight, intuitive things come from the unconscious, they have to reach consciousness for us to really. Um, play it out fully so it's that interest just like dreams it's that interesting gateway between the unconscious and the conscious so i was thinking since we don't have guests on the show today it's going to be all improv what the hell are we going to do for the second hour <laughs> um and 
I thought, well, we'll open up the the jukebox. So I thought to myself, okay, as I'm driving in to the station this morning, while I'm, you know, my unconscious is watching the road. You know, we can drive <laughs> while we're in an alpha state. I asked my intuitive brain, to, what song should we play as a to then stimulate a conversation about the Michael Cohn theatrical mm. situation we witnessed last week, right? In other words, I could sit there and go, okay, let's find a lyric about whatever. Like, mm-hmm. And that might be interesting, but I, I, I wanted to go to my mm. intuition. And the song that popped into my mind made perfect sense and no sense at the same time. Um, so it'll, I think it'll surprise you. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to play that, and then we're going to get into, okay, what, is, what does that add to that amazing theater last week that we saw? Um, that is not only interesting from a theatrical standpoint, as we pointed out, but gets to where are we as a culture psychologically? You know, I mean, how did we get here? Right. The president's right-hand man, the, he has a, our president has a fit. Well, every president has a fixer. But this guy really was like a mafia fixer. He talks like a mafia fixer. And his job was not only to be the lawyer, but to be the intimidator. Right. Right? Yeah. Now, we're supposed to feel empathy for him, and on some level we do. And we want him to open up the Pandora's box on his boss, right? I mean, it's it's the Godfather. It's Goodfellas. And it's also the reality we're living in that's, that's creating stress levels and hyperventilation like we've never seen before, right? Yeah. So what is, where are we psychologically? How did we get here? And th- the fact that this song popped up in my <laughs> just fascinates me. So we'll get to that when we come back with more of the Woodstock Roundtable. I don't need nobody 